This evening to Romans chapter 1 and in the Heidelberg Catechism to Lord's Day 13. We've been going through the names and titles of our Savior, Jesus, and then Christ, and now tonight, Only Begotten Son and Lord. Those are the things we confess. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son, our Lord. Tonight, only begotten Son and Lord. Romans 1, I'd like to read the first 17 verses, but it's especially in these first six verses that there's some spectacular language. I haven't, I don't think, given a lot of attention to it in my life. At least I've forgotten when I have, and maybe you haven't either, but there's some Remarkable phrases I'd like to draw your attention to tonight in the first six verses, but seven verses, I guess, but I'd like to read all the way through verse 17. Romans 1, at verse 1, the word of the Lord. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. God's holy word. If you turn with me in the Heidelberg Catechism, to in the Forms and Prayers book, in front of you, to page 214. Page 214. Let's continue here to explain the language of the Apostles' Creed. It's asked in question 33, why is he called God's only begotten Son? When we also are God's children? And the answer is because Christ alone is the eternal, natural Son of God. We, however, are adopted children of God, adopted by grace for the sake of Christ. 
And question 34, why do you call him our Lord? Because not with gold or silver, but with, pre- but with his precious blood, he has delivered us and purchased us, body and soul, from sin and from the tyranny of the devil to be his very own. Let's bow in prayer. Gracious God in heaven, we pray that you'd visit us by your word and spirit tonight, for you've promised to meet your people in the scriptures and to give the spirit to those who ask. So we come as beggars, unable to make the things we've read to be life and food. We live not by bread alone. We live not by a text alone. We live by the very word of blessing that proceeds from heaven. Visit us, Lord, in your word, then make it alive by your spirit. And by your spirit, make us alive to believe, to receive, and to live in the light of your word. So help us for the glory of our great Redeemer. In his name we ask it. Amen. What we consider tonight is at the very heart of our Christian confession as believers. We're confessing that Jesus Christ is God's only begotten Son. Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, is none other than the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God. And so his, his deity, his divine nature, his godness is at the heart of our confession as Christians. Now, we've been looking at these titles and names of Jesus. We looked first at that personal name, Jesus, which means Savior or Jehovah saves and And the angel had told Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from all their sins. And so we have the purpose. He comes to save sinners. And then we looked at that title, Christ, and it tells us how he's going to save sinners, the path of saving sinners. He's the anointed one, anointed as prophet, priest, and king. And it's, it's through that pathway that he's going to save sinners. But then the question comes, if, if we know the purpose is to save sinners and the path is prophet, priest, and king, what does it do just to have another prophet, priest, or king? I mean, there are lots of prophets and priests and kings. We've, we've had lots of those for the Old Testament, and none of them save God's people. There were lots of prophets, but, but none had the ability to write the word of God upon the hearts of God's people. And we had lots of priests, but not a single one removed the guilt of one single sin. And we had lots of kings, but not a single king could save God's people from all their enemies Certainly not from the enemy Satan and from the enemy within our hearts. And if all we get now in this Jesus and this Christ is one more prophet, priest, and king, then there's no hope. But that's not what we get. It's not just one more prophet, priest, or king. We get the Son of God, God's only begotten Son. And so I say that lies at the very heart of our confession tonight. That our Jesus, our Christ, is not just one more anointed, but he's the anointed. He's the beloved Son of God. And so we see that salvation is not from below, but from above. And here I begin already to draw your attention to some of the phrases in Romans 1. And I want you to take note, if you've never done this before, of how the gospel of Romans, that's what we could call it, how it opens in Romans 1.1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Have you ever noticed that before? The gospel of God. The, the word gospel, Galion means good news. So it's news, and it's the good news of God. The good news of God. It's amazing. 
Think of that phrase. As one writer puts it, so the Christian good news is the gospel of God. The apostles did not invent it. It was revealed and entrusted to them by God. This is John Stott. This is still the first and most basic conviction which underlies all authentic evangelism. What we have to share with others is neither a collection of human speculation, nor one more religion to add to the rest, not, nor really a religion at all. It is rather the gospel of God, God's own good news for a lost world. Without this conviction, evangelism is, is evacuated of its content, its purpose, its drive. You think about that. We hear all kinds of good news, right, supposedly in the world. God has but one good news for a broken and lost world. This is the good news of God. It's the only good news of God. It's the only thing we have to say to sinners is what's recorded in the gospel. There's no other good news for sinners. We can smile at our neighbors. We can speak to them with kindness. But if they say, what is the word you have for me? What good news do you bring me? There is only one good news in the world. It's the gospel of God. Of God. And that gospel of God is called, in verse 9, the gospel of his son. The gospel of his son. So I say again, what we confess tonight lies at the very heart of our Christian confession. We confess that Jesus Christ is God's only begotten Son, our Lord. Let's look this evening at his eternal glory, and then at his resurrection power, and then at his ransomed people. Those three points. First of all, his eternal glory. Question 33 says, why do you call him God's only begotten Son when you're also God's children? And we say, well, because he's the natural, he's the eternal Son, and we're, we're adopted children. That doesn't take anything away from the, the splendor and the wonder that we are God's children. But you can only appreciate that and rejoice in that and, and grasp the splendor of that when you understand that, that he's the eternal natural son. When Paul says in Romans 1 verse 3 that this gospel, verse 3, concerns his son Jesus Christ our Lord who is born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Those words take you, of course, back to, to Bethlehem, right? The seed of David, town of David, Bethlehem, in the flesh. But the person of our Savior goes back way before that, right? The person of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is one and the same with the person of the only begotten Son of God. That's who it is. The gospel of God is about a person who has existed from eternity. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things made through him. The gospel of God is about the Son of God. The one who before he came to earth was worshipped by angels and served by heavenly hosts. The one who, who brought this world into existence as God spoke through his word who is Christ. Colossians 1, all things were created through him and for him. And, be, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Only when we recognize that the gospel is concerned with a person, namely God's eternal Son, will we stagger in wonder and worship to read Romans 1 verse 3, that this gospel about this Son of God is about this Son, born of the seed of David according to the flesh. So we come to Christmas, don't we? We come to the state of humiliation, that the eternal Son of God has come down in our 
human flesh. He takes up a residence in the womb of Mary. He partakes of her human nature. Philippians 2, he, though in the form of God, didn't consider equality with God something to cling to for his own rights, but he made himself nothing. He emptied himself by becoming a servant, by coming in human likeness. What an incomprehensible wonder that the Son has done this for us. He's He's come to be born of the seed of David, to enter into our flesh, into its frailty, to partake of a broken human nature and a broken world. And this was not some rash decision of the moment, but Romans 1-2 says that this is what God promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. It was well planned, it was well mapped. The junior high catechism class this morning, we looked at that, how, how, how God, the sovereign God, prepared the way. We looked at the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, how the Roman Empire had brought a certain civil stability, ending wars and building roads and uniting the peoples in the language of Greek so that now the gospel could travel. But, but long before the, the Pax Romana, right, every, every step of the Old Testament was preparation, the flood, the, the calling of Abraham. Right, the, the, the bringing people out of Egypt, the Mount Sinai, David killing Goliath were all steps in preparation. All the sacrifices, getting ready for that climactic moment when in the fullness of time God sent forth his son to be born of a woman, born under the law. And so we have the breathtaking incarnation that the eternal son of God becomes a man. We sing that song, number 331 in our songbook, Who is he born in the stall? at whose feet the shepherds fall. Who is he in deep distress, fasting in the wilderness? Tis the Lord, O wondrous story. Tis the Lord, the King of glory. At his feet we humbly fall. Crown him, crown him, Lord of all. I mentioned some weeks about, about Guido de Bray, the author of the Belgian Confession, who, who, who in prison, facing his own execution, is going to be hung, and he's he just seems, as you read his letters to his wife and hear of his words to the fellow prisoners, to be overcome with this wonder that, that he, as a minister, has served the Son of God, and now he gets to die for the Son of God. It's a breathtaking wonder to him that he, he belongs to the Son of God. We are children of God, but we are not the eternal sons and daughters of God. He's not like us, is he? Confess that he's the eternal one. And so we stand against all heresies, ancient or modern, that, that claim that he's not the eternal son, but he is a son. He becomes a son. He was the firstborn of creation and he became. No, he's the eternal son of God. And I see in Creed says, begotten of the father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. The Bible is full of testimony to Christ's deity. We're seeing that in the Gospel of John, right? This is the primary emphasis of the Gospel of John, that Christ is the eternal Son of God. So Christ says it over and over, I and the Father, we are one. I'm in him, he's in me. I'm of one substance with him. And Christ shows it in all of his works, his miracles are demonstrating the power of God. It's not one passage. It's not even one book of the Bible. It's everywhere written. And yet this eternal son of God 
appears, Romans 1.3, in human weakness, in our flesh, so that he might die our death, so that he might take our place, that he might stand in our stead and suffer the curse upon our sins and upon us. The Son of God did not die. God cannot die. But the Son of God in our nature, in his human nature, he died for us. And so you see, we didn't just receive one more prophet, priest, or king. But we have received the prophet who's come from God to reveal God to us and who has the power to write truth upon our hearts. And we've received not one more priest, but our only high priest, who by his one sacrifice has, by the power of his deity, been able to carry the supreme wrath of God against all of our sin and to suffer that curse and live again. And we've received not one more king, but we've received our great king who triumphs over Satan, who crushes the enemy, and who protects us forever. This is the gospel of God, the gospel of his son. His son who entered into history, assumed our nature, accomplished our salvation. Romans 8, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What does it mean to stand in church and confess? That I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only begotten son. Confessing that this eternal son of God is mine and I am his. He is my savior. Born with all power and might. And that leads us to consider, secondly, then, how that power is manifest in his resurrection. Look, secondly, tonight, at his resurrection power. The next question of the catechism is, is, why do you call him our Lord? Lord is a title of sovereignty. It means he rules, he reigns, he, he's the owner, he's the king. And so the one who, who came in the flesh and assumed our weakness has been raised up in glory and power. Philippians 2 says that he became obedient to death, even death on the cross, and therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is Lord. When the resurrection, God vindicates his son. He raises him from the dead. He declares that he accepts his sacrifice, that he's won the battle. He's been perfectly obedient. He's done it all. And now all authority in heaven and earth are given to him. He's Lord. Here's a good opportunity to look at some of this maybe difficult language of Romans 1. But I'd have you notice that there's a movement in Romans 1, 3 from the humiliation of Jesus. He comes in the weakness of flesh to the exaltation of Jesus. In verse 4, verse 3 says that this gospel concerns his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. That's his humiliation coming in weakness. Verse 4, he is declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Now, the language of our English translations may be a, bit a, little, a little weak here in verse 4. It says he's declared to be the Son of God, but that word is ordinarily translated appointed. 
He's appointed to be the Son of God. He's, he's determined to be the Son of God. He's decreed to be. He's designated. And when you read that, then you might think, well, hold on a minute. I thought we just said he was not appointed to be the Son of God. He's been eternally the Son of God. Why would Paul say he's appointed to be the Son of God? Well, Paul doesn't say that. Paul says he was appointed to be the Son of God with power. With power. He's drawing a contrast here. Glorious contrast. It's not that Jesus was appointed or established or installed as the Son of God through his resurrection, but that he was appointed, he was installed the Son of God in power at the resurrection. One writer puts it like this, in this case, Paul's affirming that Jesus was appointed Son of God in power. So the resurrection is the turning point in the existence of the Son of God. Before that, he was the Son of God in weakness and lowliness. Through the resurrection, he becomes the Son of God in power. Let me say it another way. Christ, at his resurrection, enters into a new phase of his messianic lordship now. He has gained the victory. He has... He has taken possession of the Holy Spirit, as it were, to pour him out upon his people. Christ, he has, he has been exalted now as Lord and head over all. Remember, remember Peter at Pentecost? He, he preaches to the Jews and he says that you crucified Jesus. And then he says, I declare to you that this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ. God has made him Lord and Christ. Well, he's always been Lord and Christ, but, but he comes now. In the resurrection and his victory to be stated, to be installed as Lord in Christ with power. One day every knee is going to bow and every tongue will confess him Lord. And yet already now in this life, here we are tonight, our, our knees would bow, our tongues confess that he is Lord. How is that? It's because Christ has come forth from the grave with power to change hearts. I like how one pastor theologian puts it. At his resurrection, he stepped forth from the tomb in the transforming power of the Holy Spirit as the first man to break through the power of death. And he said, as though he had thought of these words long before Neil Armstrong did, that's one small step for a man and a giant leap for mankind. He broke the power of death, came forth Strong in the glory of the resurrection as the beginning of a new creation. The world has changed at the moment of Christ's resurrection. At this eternal Son of God who is willing to be born of the seed of David in the weakness of our flesh has now come forth from the grave declared to be the Son of God in power to change hearts and lives, to be Lord over his people. Now you think about who's writing these words, right? This is Paul the Apostle. Remember an apostle, Paul calls himself an apostle in verse 1, but an apostle is supposed to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus. And Paul didn't apparently see Jesus risen at the time the other disciples did. Paul continued on in his self-righteousness and persecuted the church of God until that moment on the road to Damascus when Christ intercepted him. The risen Jesus confronted him and he saw the glory of the risen Lord Jesus and the light of Christ overwhelmed him and he fell to the ground. 
And the risen Lord raised him up in new life with a power so great, not just to subdue that self-righteous heart of Paul, but to transform him and even to commission him as an apostle. And so Paul says in Romans 1 verse 5 that, that through him we have received grace and apostleship. And you think about each of those, grace and apostleship. Paul received grace, right? What is grace? It's undeserved favor toward undeserving sinners. And Paul was an undeserving sinner like us, and he received mercy, received God's favor. In fact, Paul says in 1 Timothy 1 that he was a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent man. But the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant towards me, he says. And he says, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe. And so Paul's a trophy of grace that, that for all who would come after him, they would say, there's no sinner too bad. There's no one too wicked for our Lord Jesus Christ, right? It's a wonderful thing. No one is beyond this gospel of God. This good news is God's good news for a lost world. And then Paul says that he has not just grace, but apostleship. And he says it's an apostleship in verse 5, for obedience to the faith among all nations. And so this grace that Paul's received, he is to be an ambassador of throughout all the world to all the nations because this gospel of God, this gospel of his son is for the world and it's for Palestinians and it's for Israelis and it's for Hamas terrorists and it's for self-righteous Americans. It's for all the nations. And this Christ who's appointed the Son of God in power. It's not content with one life, the life of Saul the persecutor, but Christ has come to gather a great number for the glory of God. And we believe tonight here, we Gentiles, because the good news of God has come for us, the nations. We need to be staggered again by the wonder of it that the living God of heaven and earth has proclaimed good news for a lost world. And that good news, its very center is the person of his son who came in the weakness of flesh to die our death and who is raised in glorious resurrection power by the Holy Spirit to send that spirit into hearts and to conquer them and to make them his own forever. And that brings us then finally tonight to consider his ransomed people, his ransomed people. The catechism, you'll notice, asks in question 34, not why do you call him Lord, but why do you call him our Lord? Why do you call him your Lord? Why do you say my Lord? And the answer, because not with gold or silver, but with his precious blood, he's delivered and purchased us body and soul from sin and from the tyranny of the devil to be his very own. He's claimed us for his own. He's purchased us. That means two things. Number one, it means you don't belong to the old master anymore. This past week, we've heard about, I've made reference too many times now, the murder of the women children and babies by terrorists. And we're reminded that outside of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are not 
a nice people or not a pleasant people. Or Paul tells Titus that we used to be wicked people, hateful and hating one another. We're not by nature free and good people. We are subject to the power of the evil one, and the evil one is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. Never forget that the first couple on this planet had a son who murdered his brother. Never forget that. Whenever we begin to think we're pretty good people, we're evolving quite well. Remember where we came from and look around and notice that nothing has changed. Murderers. We are murderers by nature. We're under the power of the evil one. We are children of the devil. We are held hostage and in bondage. Where would you be tonight if Christ Jesus was not your Lord? If he, by the power, the Son of God in power, had not invaded your life and rescued you, you think you would be without prejudice, without hatred, without murder in your heart? You think that you'd be free of all foolish worldviews? That you would be a, a wise person? No, the eternal Son of God is the only answer. He's come in weakness to be raised in power to set us free. And so Peter can say, First Peter, knowing that you were redeemed not with corruptible things like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but you're redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. What do you get from your fathers? You get a worthless life, brutal life. Left to ourselves, we are violent and hateful people filled with idolatries, bound by Satan, with chains that we could never break. Jesus tells the Jews in, in John chapter 8, he says, you shall know the truth, the truth shall make you free. And they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? And Jesus answered them, most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. But the Son of God came to rescue us from the domination of Satan and to break the shackles of sin. And so Jesus says, therefore, if the Son, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. So that's the first thing. To confess Jesus as our Lord is to say, I'm no longer under that old dominion. I have, I have been purchased. I have been claimed. I have been redeemed, which means I have been bought back for my Lord and King set free. But then it means, secondly, then I should live that way. I am the Lord's. Notice Paul can say that he's, you know, he's this servant of the Lord, but then he says to the Romans, and they're, they're Romans, right? They're living at the heart of the Roman Empire in the imperial city, and, and they're very much aware that there is an emperor. But he says to them in verse 6, you also are the called of Jesus Christ. You belong to Jesus. You are not your own. 
the called of the Lord. Later, he will tell them in Romans 14, for none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose again, lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. What a glorious comfort. Be able to confess tonight, I'm not my own. I belong to him. He has purchased me. He has bought me. I am his. What a world of comfort. We live in a day and an age when people have lost any sense of belonging, right? And if you look what, what's happened now through technology, right, and all the anonymous living that goes on online and how families have also in our culture, broken apart and a sense of any job that you do what your father did has been lost and everything is, is just so many moving parts now. Nobody has any sense that I belong to live at this spot, at this place in the earth. I, I live here and I won't move away. That's not the case. Or I have to do this job. My parents, my father, my grandfather did this job. I have to do this job. That's lost. Or I belong to this family. My mom and dad will stay together and that's lost. And then human relationships, as people live online, human relationships are lost. And in this anonymous world now, people have no bearing, and young people especially are deeply, deeply confused in our culture. They have no sense of belonging. But tonight we confess that we belong to Jesus Christ, God's Son. He's our Lord. I have a master, I have a friend, I have a king. But then with that comfort comes a calling that we are to live consciously in every aspect of our life in the awareness that we are the Lord's. My time is not my own. My hands are not my own. My mind is not my own. Peter tells them, you spent enough enough of your your past time living as the pagans do. You, You, before Christ came, you spent enough time doing what you wanted to do. Now you are the Lord. You've been redeemed by his precious blood. G.I. Packer, on his book that goes through the Apostles' Creed, Packer writes that he has a right to rule us, Jesus does, and we have no right to resist his claim. As he invaded space and time in Palestine nearly 2,000 years ago, so he invades our personal space and time today with the same purpose of love that first brought him to earth. Come, follow me was his word then, and it is so still. Paul can say in the very first words of this book, that he's a bondservant of Jesus, or you could translate it slave. I don't belong to myself. I have an owner. I have a master. No, he's not a brute or a tyrant. But I am not free to do my own thing. I'm a slave of Jesus. It's a remarkable claim, as Paul writes to the Romans, because the Roman world is filled with slaves. What do they say? Like Something like one-third of the population was slaves. And Paul himself had Roman citizenship. And yet he writes to these people in the imperial city and he says, I'm a slave of Jesus. The joy of the kingdom of Jesus Christ is not found in seeing how little I can give him and still get away with it. 
The joy of serving our king is not, is not found in being the kind of employee at work that whenever somebody needs something done, you look like you're busy so no one calls on you. The joy of serving Christ's kingdom is not trying to avoid his claims. But as I said this morning, John Calvin's motto, my heart, I offer to you promptly and sincerely. Lord, I'm yours. And so I ask you tonight, is the lordship of our Lord Jesus Christ evident? Is his claim evident in your life? And the things that you listen to and the things that you watch and fill your eyes with? Is Christ's claim evident in the way you're using your time? Whether fully employed or retired and having to decide how to use your time each day? Is it evident that Lord Jesus is Lord of your life? Is it evident in your marriage? Is it evident in the way you look upon your neighbor? Is it evident in the way you look at your money? It's not mine. I belong to another. I have a master. I'm a slave of Jesus. The joy of Christ's kingdom is not in avoiding that, but in learning to yield all that we have to the one who is worthy, rejoicing in the gospel of God and the gospel of his Son, and knowing that we too are the called of Jesus Christ. That he, as he did for Saul the persecutor, has brought us into his kingdom and under his lordship. And in that is our joy, our life, and our glory. May Jesus Christ be acknowledged every day this week, everywhere we go, every thought we think, that he may be praised. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your beloved Son. What an amazing thing that there is good news from God for a lost world, the good news of your Son. Forgive us, Lord, for holding back and treating Jesus the way we've treated many people, hiding the things that we have so we don't have to give them away. He's worthy of everything. He is the one who has rescued us and given to us true freedom. May we learn the freedom of giving everything to him. We thank you that he is the son of God in power. He's transformed our lives and he is transforming them. How we pray that this gospel would spread the obedience to the faith among all the nations for his name's sake. Bless us this week, God, to live for you. May we in new ways this week find out the joy of yielding to our master. May he be praised. In Jesus' name, amen.